The scripture reading this morning is from John 4, 1 through 26. If you'd open your Bibles to that passage, please. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? since I am a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob. Are, you are not greater than our father Jacob are, and the well is deep. Oh, and you, I'm sorry, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to him, said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all this way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one with whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. 
May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. We are continuing our study in the Gospel of John, obviously, um, and really seeking to follow the purpose of this book, which is to behold the Son in his glory. Um, Today's message is maybe a little challenging for me because it's uh, somewhat introductory for next week's message. So there's more background today, there's uh, more details that we're going to be talking about today. Um, that will hopefully uh, apply directly to the message next week. So you're going to have to exercise those minds and retain some information for a week uh, and bring them together next week. I believe the Lord will help us all do that. So uh, Next week's message is going to be titled, The Living Water of Worship. That is the living water that Christ came to give us, the living water of true spiritual worship. And uh, But today, we're going to be looking at living water for the thirsty. Living water for the thirsty. We're going to try to make it through the first 18 verses of John 4. Uh, This is a a very familiar story for most of us, but it truly is one of the most glorious encounters between Christ and a sinner that we have in the New Testament. Mostly because of how shocking it is. Uh, Within this um, account, we have uh, Jesus speaking to a woman. In a culture that really despised women, uh, Jesus restores in this passage something of the dignity of womanhood. Uh, you know, we, we take for granted that women are respected in our society, and, and, and very often uh, women in our society press their advantage to the disrespect of men, um, which is just the, the, way of the, the way of the world, right? The oppressors become the oppressed, and the oppressed become the oppressors, according to sinful outlook on life. But Jesus, in this passage, it, within a culture that really despised women, restores something of the dignity of womanhood, and he uses an immoral woman to do it. That's pretty shocking. We also see here that Jesus breaks through the ethnic pride and racism of the day by showing God's readiness to give the gift of living water to anyone who is thirsty and to anyone who will ask, even if that someone is a Samaritan. We'll unpack that a little more in just a minute. Now, this woman's life that Jesus encounters or interacts with proved that she was spiritually thirsty. And Jesus does two things for her in these interactions. Number one, he exposes her thirst. Uh, In other words, he shows that her life is a life that is dissatisfied. A life of broken relationships and immorality covered over by a, a religious veneer. A a form of religion that had no power in it. That comes up over and over again throughout this uh, interaction with this woman. So he exposes her thirst, and that's primarily what we're going to be focusing on today. But then, he doesn't just expose her thirst to shame her or to show her what she lacks. He exposed her thirst in order to prepare her to be satisfied with his water. So he exposes her thirst, and then he satisfies 
her thirst. He gives her the living uh, spiritual water of a restored relationship with God. So that's what Jesus did for this woman. That's just kind of an overview of what we're looking at. And that is exactly what Jesus intends to do for each one of us. He exposes our spiritual emptiness and our thirst, and then he satisfies us with a life of reconciled, spirit-filled communion with our Heavenly Father. So today we're going to be walking through this passage to see how Jesus exposes this woman's thirst, and we will come back to see him satisfy it next week. As we get into it, would you pray with me and ask for the Lord to bless our time? Father, as we come before your word and we've had this overview of, of this passage and where we're going, we do pray that the very realities that we see your son uh, working in this woman's life in this passage, we pray that we would recognize the working of your son in our own lives, Lord, exposing us in our thirst, exposing our sin to show us that we need something more than what ourselves or, or our forms of religion can offer. We need living water that comes from the hand of God the Son. And Father, I thank you that in your Son you have promised to give that living water to any and to all who will come to him and receive it. So Father, make us willing this morning. You have commanded that we come to your Son. We pray that you give us the ability this morning to come to your Son and to receive from his hand the fullness of the gift that you've sent him to give. Lord, we love you. We want to love you more. We want Christ to be lifted high among us, not just corporately, but individually. We really want to be taken by Christ more fully. So Lord, would you please do that great work in us and help us live for your glory in his name. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, this section... John 4 opens by making clear that Jesus has a divine appointment in Samaria. In chapter 4, verse 3, we see Jesus departing from the lands of Judea and beginning to make his way up to Galilee uh, in the north. Uh, Matthew 4, uh, verse 12, tells us that this took place at the same time when John was thrown into prison. So obviously at this point in John chapter 4, John has been cast into prison and Jesus takes that as his signal that now it's time for him to bring light to those who are dwelling in darkness. It was time for him to move according to the word of the prophets into the land of Galilee. And just as a side note, this had, I didn't have this in my notes, but the reason why Jesus spent his time laboring in Galilee And coming with light from God to those who were dwelling in darkness is because the land of Galilee, the region of Galilee, was the first place where God's judgment fell upon his people. That's where God's judgment under Assyria came first and foremost. It came up in the north. And so Jesus coming to undo the, the, uh, the history of that curse from God, the wrath of God that fell upon his people, he comes to the very point where the wrath fell upon them to begin with. And he begins showering them with the light of the gospel, the hope of the good news he came to bring, just as a side note. So he begins to do that as John is thrown into prison. In chapter 4, verse 1, it tells us a reason why he left the lands of Judea and went into Galilee. It was because the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Now, why would that be a problem? Why would the Pharisees be bothered by that? Why would that be a reason for Jesus to leave Judea? 
Well, we saw in chapter 1 that the Pharisees were already feeling a little jealous and threatened by the ministry of John, right? They sent messengers to John over and over again to find out, who are you? We need to know who you are and what you're doing. We have to report back to those in Jerusalem who sent us. What do you claim for yourself? So all of that was birthed out of jealousy. It was birthed out of a sense of being threatened by the ministry of John. The Pharisees, over and over again through this gospel, we're going to see that when their power was threatened, they acted to retaliate, right? They needed to, to bring up their guards and, and shore up their, their sense of authority to make sure they didn't lose their spiritual authority over the life of the people. And so here, they learned that Jesus is making and baptizing even more disciples than John was. So... If they felt threatened by John, how much more do they feel threatened by Jesus, right? If John was a public enemy to the Pharisees, then Jesus becomes public enemy number one. So it was time for Jesus to leave Judea and to become light for those sitting in darkness in Galilee. But there was something that Jesus had to do on his way to Galilee, something he needed to do first. Verse 4, chapter 4, tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria on his way to Galilee. Now, for any of my Greek geeks in the audience, the word here for had to is the same word that was used for must in John chapter 3, verse 7, and John chapter 3, verse 30. So when Jesus says you must be born again, that's a necessity, that's a requirement, right? When John says he must increase and I must decrease, that's a requirement. Jesus has to get greater. John has to become lesser. That same word is used here to describe Jesus' movement into the land of Samaria. It was something that he had to do. It was, there was a divine constraint on him. He had an appointment in Samaria. So it says in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you're just looking at the map and you understand the cultural uh, uh, patterns of traveling through uh, the land of that time and that region, most of the time when the Jews would go from the lands of Judea up to Galilee, they would either cross over the Jordan and get on the east side of the Jordan and go up that way, or they would go, to, they would go west to the uh, shore, uh, the, the coast, and they would travel north that way. They would refuse most of the time to walk through the lands of Samaria. So it wasn't exactly that Jesus had no other option than to go north through the land of Samaria. He had other options, but there was a purposeful choice in his decision to move into the land of Samaria. He had to go there because the father had prepared a harvest for his son among the Samaritans, didn't he? We're going to see that. A revival breaks out among these, this Samaritan village in, at the end of this chapter. And really, if you think about it, that's simply foreshadowing the movement of the gospel itself, right? You remember in Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that, that verse becomes kind of paradigmatic for understanding the movement of the gospel throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Right, so you have the movement of the gospel among the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea. Then you have the movement of the gospel among the Samaritans. And then you have the movement of the gospel to the Gentiles, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Right? That's the, the flow and the pattern of the book of Acts. Well, we see that represented right here in the gospel of John. In John chapter 3, who is Jesus mainly dealing with? He's dealing with the Jew. Right? Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, Pharisee. Jesus is calling the Jews to faithful, a life of faithful dependence upon him as their Messiah. Here in John chapter 4, what do we see? 
Jesus moves to the Samaritans and calls them with the gospel. And then by the end of the chapter, he's interacting with Gentiles and calling them with the gospel. See, even in the life and ministry of Jesus, he was foreshadowing what was going to be fulfilled in the life of the church. The gospel wasn't just for the Jews. The gospel wasn't even just for the Samaritans. The gospel was for everyone. God the Father sent his son into the world for the world, not just the world of the Jews. Right. So here we find in Jesus this pattern of God's intention and purpose for bringing the gospel to the entire world represented right here in these chapters. Now, verse 5 tells us that Jesus came to a city of Samaria called Sychar. And that was near a parcel of ground that Jacob had given his son Joseph. You can read about that in, uh, at the Genesis chapter 48 and then also in Joshua 24, verse 32. That describes it more clearly. But verse 6 tells us the specific location where Jesus uh, came, and that was at Jacob's well. And because it was at about the sixth hour of the day, which is noon, the Jews started reckoning time during the day at 6 a.m.-ish, around 6 o'clock in the morning. So the sixth hour of the day would be high noon. Um, because it was about the sixth hour of the day and Jesus and his disciples had been walking through the desert and the hill country all morning, Jesus was wearied by his journey and he sat down at this well. Verse 8 tells us that while he was sitting there, the disciples went into the city to buy some food about half a mile away from the well. And so, there Jesus is alone, waiting for a divine appointment. Now, just a tidbit of information that I thought was pretty fascinating. This well uh, that Jesus sits at, this, uh, Jacob's well, at this point in the story, that well was 2,000 years old. It was 135 feet deep and still providing water for the people in that time. 2,000 years of a water source, right? What's even more amazing is that that, that well still provides water today. 4,000 years of giving water in this well. Isn't it amazing that Jesus chooses to use that well as a picture and a type of the living water that he's going to provide for his people? Pretty, pretty remarkable to me. So, but anyway... Uh, in fact, this is actually important for the story. Uh, you guys with me today? I feel a little scattered, but you with me today? Yeah. Amen. Uh, this is why the Samaritans thought that this well was sacred. Because God had preserved that well through many, many years of being overrun by Assyrians and Babylonians and, and, and raids from Egyptians and, and the Medo-Persians and... The Lord and the Greeks, the Lord had preserved that well as a testimony to his ability to give life and water in the wilderness, right? And so the Samaritans viewed that as sacred. And because it belonged to them, they viewed themselves as the sacred chosen people of God. And that well was a testament to that. That's going to become important as we work through this story with this woman. So Jesus was there alone waiting for that divinely appointed moment to come when he would meet this woman whom God had entrusted to his care to save. You know, I, I know that most Christians don't spend time thinking about this very much. But just like this woman, the moment of our salvation is a divinely appointed moment. 
It's a moment that's been ordained from all eternity and has been intricately worked out by God and his providence from the beginning of time. So the only reason you and I are sitting here in this room right now, this day, is because at the beginning of time, God decreed that on this day, at this time, we would all be gathered here in this place, worshiping his name together. That's why all of our families migrated where they went. That's why our families settled in the United States where they did. That's why we were, we were brought to these specific locations and somehow in God's providence and in his grace, he ordained our steps to come across the point where we heard the gospel for the first time with power and we were redeemed by that gospel. The spirit awakened us to see the glory of Christ. And then in his providential dealings with us, we all found ourselves eventually, some of us many more years than others, we found ourselves eventually gathered here this morning at Oak Ridge Community Church. All because God divinely ordained every single one of those moments and was faithfully working them out. There's a glory to your salvation that's far beyond you simply making a decision to let Jesus into your life. God has been working that moment in your specific personal life. God was working that moment out from the beginning of time. Imagine all the people that had to meet, all the, all the marriages that had to happen, right? All the relationships within families that had to be preserved or destroyed in order to bring you about and bring you to the point of salvation. God's work in his creation is a miracle. It's an astound- Every day that you wake up, it's an astounding miracle that God has ordained for you to walk in. You know, there are no accidents. There are no happenstances. There's no random chance events. There's only a sovereign God choosing to pour out the riches of his kindness and grace upon us. Orchestrating all things in the history of the world down to the menial events of your daily life. To bring you to that eternally appointed moment when he would reveal the glory of his son in your heart. The way Paul describes it in Galatians 1, 15 and 16. Now, just the application there, beloved, if God, if God is a God who loves us like that, who has been working from the beginning of time to accomplish this reality of salvation in our lives, then surely God is worthy of our trust in the present and for our future. Well, here in verse 7, we find that Jesus waiting at this well for this woman The woman finally comes, the moment when the Samaritan woman arrives to draw water out of the well, the moment when Jesus begins to engage with her. Now, this was an odd time. You've probably heard this mentioned before. This was an odd time for a woman to be drawing water out of a well, especially odd that she was coming alone to do it. Uh, In Genesis 24, 11, for example, we find that the pattern in this culture for centuries had been for women to go out as a group to gather water together at specific times of the day. So here, uh, this is Abraham's servant going to find Isaac a wife, and he sits the camels down by a well waiting for the appropriate time when the women come together out to the well. Very strategic, right? He's trying to catch a wife for his master's son, and, and what does he do? He goes where the women are. And... And he waits. Single men. Some, some encouragement there, right? You want to get married? Go where the women are. And 
Kathy, can I speak to that too, just for a second, without you being offended? I was once at a church where there were tons of single women and there were tons of single men, right? Not all of them were called to be married, and that's good. That's a gift from God. If you are not called to be married, God gave you that gift, and you need to use it to the fullest extent, and the church needs to support you in that. But those who are not called to be single, those who, those who are called to be married, you need, to, you need to exercise some wisdom from Proverbs, right? Order your steps. Let God direct your way. Make some plans. Go meet and interact and mingle with single women and see if there's one of them that the Lord uses to pique your interest and pursue her. Just pursue her. I want to encourage you to that. To do that. Don't, don't, don't pine away waiting around for the Lord to satisfy that desire to be married. Go, go pursue it. The Lord will bless your path. He'll lead you to the right woman. Anyway, hope that wasn't offensive to anybody. I love you. I want to see you as godly as possible. And I think marriage is one of the greatest means of godliness that God's given us. So, All right. So here in uh, women, the, the normal pattern for women was to go out as a group. That's because it wasn't always safe for women to travel alone, right? Especially going out of the city. That is, you're going out from the gathered uh, group of people. You're going out into a more secluded region. Many things can happen then, right? Same thing happens today not always wise for women to go alone, so they would go together as a group. And it wasn't really wise to go out and carry this huge tote of water, this huge um, vessel of water in the middle of the heat, right? At, the, at, the, at high noon, it's the hottest part of the day. That's not very wise. Wait for the sun to go down in the cool of the evening, then go draw the water that you need for your household. Well, this woman in John 4 is not doing any of that. She's alone. She's not coming at evening time. She's coming at noon, the hottest part of the day. And already, in the way that John has presented this story, the way the Holy Spirit has presented this, this story to us, we're already supposed to pick up on the fact that this was unusual. This was not normal. It wasn't normal for a woman to be alone out on her own like this. It wasn't normal for them to come and, and women to come gather water in the middle of the day like this. There's something going on under the surface with this woman. And Jesus is intentionally singling her out to interact with her. So verse 7, as she approached, Jesus initiates the conversation with her saying, give me a drink. Now Jesus, uh, excuse me, she responds back to Jesus in verse 9 with surprise saying, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Well, John explains that she asked that because the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So it was rather shocking for Jesus and this woman approaching for him to look at her and say, give me a drink of water. Now, there was a long history of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Most of us know that. The uh, Jews despised the Samaritans because they were a people of mixed ethnicity. They weren't racially pure, if you want to use the language we use today. I don't like the word race. I don't think it's a very helpful category because there's only one race. That's the human race. Uh, we all have different pigments, pigmentation, and our different levels of pigmentation in our skin. Melanin is is uh, some of us more than in others, but we are all the same color, just different shades. Uh, we have different ethnicities, though, different cultural backgrounds, different family groups from which we come. It's more appropriate to call race ethnicity. But just told you guys, I feel scattered today. I'm sorry. But, uh, the Jews despised the Samaritans because they were a people of mixed ethnicity. The Samaritans were the descendants of the Israelite remnant. 
that had been left in the land after the Assyrian captivity in 722 BC. So when the Assyrians came through the northern kingdom and they wiped it out, they, they transported all of the, the high-end nobles and officials of the Israelite people over to different lands, and then they brought in foreigners and settled them in the land of Israel. But they left a remnant of Israelites there in the land, the poor and the weak, those that weren't really of any use or benefit to the Assyrian Empire, right? That was the point. And so this remnant of, of Israelites began to intermix and, and mingle with these uh, foreign pagan nationals that came into their country, uh, or, or uh, foreigners that, came, that were brought into their country. They began to marry with them, and eventually there's this mixed race that is produced. And not only mixed uh, physically in their bloodline, but also mixed in their religion. They were syncretized. They had elements of, of true Israelite worship and elements of pagan worship all blended together. They uh, built a new temple on Mount Gerizim, which was the Mount of Blessing, if you remember from Deuteronomy. That's the mountain where they would have to proclaim the blessing of the Lord upon the people for all who obey. They built a new temple on Mount Gerizim and called that the center of worship. Well, because of all of that, especially because they were a mixed uh, people, the Jewish people of Jesus' day did not count them to be true descendants of Abraham, and uh, vice versa, the Samaritans did not actually believe that the Jewish people were the true people of God. So there was this ethnic tension and prejudice and animosity that existed between them. But when Jesus asked this woman for a drink, he was purposefully going against all cultural norms and expectations, right? Here he is at this well, ready to sit down and receive a drink of water from this despised, ethnically impure Samaritan woman. And in a sense, what Jesus is doing when he asks her to give him a drink, he is inviting her into fellowship with him, right? He's communing with her on some level. He's inviting her in. Now, my point in bringing this out is that he didn't engage with her because she was a Jew. He was treating her with impartiality. And he did not allow the categories of classism and race and ethnic prejudice to shade his interactions with her. He deals with her as an individual, possessing the dignity that belongs to a creature who is made in the image of God. I can't help but make an application to our modern day here. We live in a world where ethnic prejudice is real. What we refer to as racism. And I I don't want to deny that. But Christ taught his disciples to deplore the sins of bigotry, prejudice, racism, and oppression in all of its forms. We see him living that out right here in John chapter 4. You know, that's the same thing that demonic doctrines like critical theory, critical race theory, wokeism. That's the same thing that those demonic doctrines are claiming to deal with as well. They're not helpful categories of thinking or diagnostic tools for understanding race relations, as some claim them to be. They don't do anything except continue to stoke the fires and fan into flame racial division and animosity that's already there. All they do is highlight and magnify all the more the differences between people. And that's because they operate out of an atheistic Marxist worldview 
that completely cuts itself off from the only real answer to sinful racism, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth that every single human being on the face of the planet, whether uh, whatever ethnicity that person may be, whatever culture that person comes from, every single human being on the face of the planet is an individual made in the image of God. And Christ demands that his church and his people treat every single human being as such. Every person on this planet is an image bearer of God, and we have the obligation from Christ to treat every person on this planet as an image bearer of God. See, critical race theory and and, and critical theory completely strips the individual of his or her dignity and treats people upon the basis of various classes. So you are not a person as an individual, you are a person that belongs to a class. And your class is either oppressed or it's oppressing. Either way, that's how you ought to be dealt with in order to achieve justice for one another. That is absolutely contradictory to the way that God has created us to function. We are not classes of people. We are individual image bearers. And we must be treated as individual image bearers in order for justice to be upheld for us. Critical race theory... Critical theory, all the other aspects of wokeism, let's just call it what it is. All it is is more racism. And you cannot be like Christ and adopt or buy into a system of thinking that is racist. I read an article about new teacher licensing regulations uh, the other day. That in order to be a, a teacher in the state of Minnesota, you have to, you have to exhibit an ability to, to incorporate teachings of race, critical theory, into your teaching curriculum as a teacher for your students. Or else they will not license you. You know, they keep things like that pretty quiet. Because they don't want you to know. But this is what's happening in our public, public school systems in this state. The judge has passed that, by the way, with just a couple of tweaks that need to be made. Uh, It's it's, uh, it's frustrating. But you cannot be like Christ and buy into or adopt a system of thinking like that. And let me be clear here and now, so that there's no one who can charge me with with viewing the situation of the world with rose-colored glasses. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. Where I grew up, I was the minority. Where my mom grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, she was definitely the minority. And guess what? I've seen racism firsthand. I've seen racism from white people. I've seen racism from black people. I've seen racism from Asian people. Right? Racism exists. It's part of our fallen nature. It's what we crave, and it's what we do as fallen creatures. We act in prejudice. And it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what background you come from. You can be the most bigoted person in the world if you are black in inner city Memphis, or you can be the most bigoted person in the world if you're at Martha's Vineyard. It doesn't matter. Race is race. Racism is racism. Ethnic prejudice is everywhere. And we all experience it in some way or another. I grew up in Memphis. Half of my childhood was in a part of Memphis where I was the minority. I know what it's like to see real racism put on. I was chased around by black gang members bearing a machete one night because I was white. 
Don't tell me I don't know what racism is. I know what it is. I know what it's like to be impoverished. My white privilege did not help my parents at all. Half of my childhood, we survived on ramen noodles. And, and I won't say the term, but stuff on a shingle. We just ground beef and, and gravy and bread. That's what we ate. That's all we could afford. My white privilege helped me out a lot. All this is, is, is all that these categories of thinking are are ways to corrupt our society. I hope you can see through that. It, it's such a far cry from the true, the true um, appeal for civil rights that were coming forth from men like Martin Luther King Jr. He said, let not a man be judged by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. That's not, that's not critical race theory. That's not critical theory. They don't care about the content of your character as individuals. Well, this is just the way the world is. And the only answer to any of this prejudice and racism is Christianity. That's what led to the end of slavery. William Wilberforce and all the others who labored with him, they labored out of a strong, sure conviction that Christ was, would maintain the dignity of that person who had been enslaved, and it was their responsibility to fight for that person's dignity as well. They were Christians, and they were laboring out of a Christian worldview. Christ radically disrupted the world when he came into the world. You know that. He brought in categories of thinking and ways of interacting with one another that were utterly foreign to anything else that had ever been introduced into the world. Everything else was all based upon categories of race, categories of culture, categories of ethnic past and heritage, ancestry. Jesus came in and disrupted all of it when he asked this simple Samaritan woman for a drink of water. The only answer is Christianity. That's what... That's, that's, that's how true civil rights are established. And, and it's the result of men and women actually believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ and following through on the teachings and the example of Jesus Christ and treating other people as fellow image bearers of God. And just to be clear, if you have prejudice in your heart against another human being because of that person's ancestry, or because of that person's genetic makeup, or something as shallow as their skin tone, then you are in sin and you need to repent. And I've got friends who, are, who have bought hook, line, and sinker into wokeism, and they charge me with saying, you don't call out racism for what it is. No, I do. I call out racism as individual people, and I'm telling you right now, if in your heart you have bigotry against someone else for something as dumb and stupid and insane as the color of their skin or their cultural background, you are in sin and you need to repent. Jesus will judge you for that. And let me add something else to that. These principles of prejudice don't only apply to the ethnicity that we belong to. They also apply to the sin categories that we come from. There's so many Christians, and I'm not charging anyone in this room with this, but so many Christians in our day, I've heard them speak with such disdain about people who are trapped in a lifestyle of homosexuality, and are trying to, to claim um, gender dysphoria in, in 
want to mutilate their flesh and what is called today transgender, transgendering. You can't, you, can't, you can't change your gender. It's what you are biologically, genetically. You, you, you can ne- a biological male can never be anything other than a biological male. He can pretend to be something. And the world around him, as insane as it is, can uphold him in his delusion. But the reality is he's always going to be a male. A biological female, the same. You can never change what you are biologically. God has ordered that. And all this transgendering is is an attempt to overthrow the rule of God, to define truth for ourselves and say, we will be masters of our own fate. We will be the captains of our soul, even if it means we destroy ourselves physically and emotionally. We will be the captain. We as Christians can very often meet people like that and be filled with a kind of prejudice against them that we don't experience against other kinds of sinners caught in other kinds of sins. What about, what about the serial adulterer? What about the person hooked on pornography? What about gluttony? What about pride? Do we view that sin as equally detestable as we do the sin of homosexuality? Let me ask it better this way. With some sins, it's far easier for us to look through the sin and see the person, isn't it? See the individual behind that sin who's broken and shattered and who needs to have a reconciled relationship to God. For some some sinners, it's far easier to do that than with others. But Christ here in this passage shows us exactly what we are called to do as Christians. We are called to engage people with his gospel, regardless of what sin they're trapped in. There should be an amen to that. Thank you. Homosexuals and mutilators and, and even baby killers, abortionists, even... Democrat and Republican legislators. Jesus is willing to save them too. You know that? Do you really believe Jesus is willing to save Joe Biden? You should. You should. You should pray for that. I hope you are. Jesus deals with people as people, not as classes. And when he looks at those people, he doesn't merely focus on the surface sins and the surface issues that come up. He looks beyond those surface issues to see the heart. And he seeks to deal with people there on that heart level. As image bearers of God who, no matter who they are, need to be healed from their brokenness and restored to reflect the glory of God in their lives the way they should. Beloved, it's our obligation as followers of Christ to exhibit that same kind of love and that same kind of compassion for the sinners around us. Not getting bogged down in the surface level issues of their sin, but looking through that to see the sinner behind that sin, the broken sinner who needs to be healed by the gospel of Christ. We're not going to have time to finish this out probably today, but let me try to cover some some high-level stuff here. You know, Jesus proves his willingness to save in an unbiased manner.
by what he offers this woman next in verse 10. This woman was so beside herself with her own bigotry and her own prejudice against the Jewish people that she says, rather than giving him a drink, recognizing that he's thirsty, recognizing that a cup of water would do him some great good, rather than doing that and serving her neighbor with love, she stands back with her hands up and says, whoa, 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 wait a second now. Why are you, a Jew, asking something from me, a Samaritan woman? I'm not, what's going on here? Her own prejudice is bleeding through in the passage. Jesus says in verse 10 that he's willing to give her God's living water if she would but ask for it. Now that's an amazing thing. No Jew would have thought that God would send his Messiah to give living water to the Samaritans. Rather, the cup of judgment, the cup of wrath, the cup of anger, but not living water. Living water of fellowship with God Intimacy with him. Jesus says in verse 10, if you knew, woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What's he doing here? What's Jesus doing there? He's confronting her prejudice and he's addressing her ignorance. She thought she knew who she was dealing with. She thought he was just this Jewish man, this Jewish supremacist who had come to interact with this Samaritan. And she really didn't want anything to do with him. But Jesus ignores that surface issue and moves on to address the deeper problem of her heart. The problem was not that she was a Samaritan rather than a Jew. The problem was her ignorance of God. That was her problem. She didn't know the gift of God that was standing right in front of her. She didn't even recognize it well enough to ask him to bless her, which is why he came. And the answer for her problem was not for her to become Jewish. The answer was for her simply to recognize the gift that God had given her in Christ and to receive the living water he was offering her at his hand. Verse 11, she still didn't get it. She says, how are you going to get water for me? You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then are you going to get this living water? When you see what Jesus is doing in this passage, he's not concerned about the water from the well. He's concerned about welling out what is going on in this woman's soul. Right? Remember Proverbs, what is it, Proverbs 20, verse 5? It says the plans, the, the counsel in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. That's what Jesus is doing here with this woman. He's drawing out of her what is actually going on on the inside. And in her responses to Jesus, she begins to unveil exactly what is in her heart. You see this begin to come out in verse 12, where she says, You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? Now you can hear here the religious overtones that she's drawing back on. She's falling back on her understanding of being in a relationship with God already. You're not greater than Jacob, are you? This sarcastic question is not really about physical water from the well that's sitting in front of them. She's cycling back to this religious debate that had been going on between the Jews and Samaritans for centuries. You notice she says uh, this, are you greater than our father, Jacob? Who is she claiming to be uh, Jacob? Who is she claiming to be Jacob's descendants? Not the Jewish people, but the Samaritans. Our father, Jacob. Why is that significant? Well, because Jacob was the, was the one who received the promise of the covenant from God. He's our father, and he gave us this well. Are you saying that you're better than Jacob? You're greater than him? 
So really what this is, is a very religious way of saying to Jesus, I don't need anything that you have to give, Jew. Very mercifully, Jesus begins to explain in verse 13 why, in fact, she does need what he has to give her. He says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Whatever it is, in other words, whatever it is you think you have received from Jacob, its inability to satisfy you is proven by the fact that you're only going to get thirsty again no matter how much of that water you drink. You're always going to be needing more. But he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. What is Jesus talking about when he's talking about this well of water? Oh, you all should know this because we memorized these verses last week. I think we did. John 7, 37 through 39, 38 and 39. What's Jesus talking about this living water? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's referring to the gift of the Spirit whenever he tells this woman, I've got living water to give you that will satisfy you and will become in you a well of water that will carry you on to eternity. It will satisfy you unto the eternal life that is to come. Or as Henry Skugel referred to it, that he's talking about the life of God in the soul of a man. He comes to her and he says, I'm ready to give you the very life of God in your soul, woman. So that you'll never be thirsty again. It's that true, satisfying fellowship of worshiping with God in spirit and in truth that Jesus is offering to this woman. And yet, she still doesn't get it. She's still not ready to receive it. So what does Jesus do next? He begins to actually expose how deep her thirst, her spiritual thirst really is. To show her that all of her religious connections to Jacob and as a Samaritan and at this well and at the Mount of Gerizim where she was living, none of this mattered because her life was showing how spiritually bankrupt she actually was. He begins to expose her thirst. You see in verse 15, the woman says back to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come all the way here to draw water. Now, just a side note, you see what happened there. Something Jesus said to her struck a nerve and changed her perception of the well that was in front of them. Just a minute ago, she was boasting about that well. She said, are you greater than Jacob who gave this well to us? You know, Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, he, he drank from that well. You know that? He, he fed his cattle. He, he uh, gave water to his cattle from that well. Are you, are you greater than, than what this well represents? Well, here she's kind of flipped on that, hasn't she? She says, sir, if you have water like that, and she's speaking sarcastically. She's not really believing Jesus has a literal well that he's going to sink into her soul, Right? She said, oh, man, I, I wish you had that kind of water because then I wouldn't have to come to this well anymore. Doesn't that show something of the shallowness of what she was saying prior? She's now, um, she's now beginning to, uh, uh, where am I in my notes? She's now, <laughs> she's now rejecting the very thing that she had just been boasting in. She was boasting in that well prior, but now she's confessing that she would rather not have to come there anymore. And why is that? Why would she not rather not have to come there anymore? Well, unbelieving commentators speculate that she says this because this well was so far away from the city. It was about half a mile. 
And so they say that she didn't want to come to this well anymore simply because she didn't want to walk there. Well, you know, they have found many other wells that were closer to the city than this one. Uh, there were many wells where she could have gone to get water without having to come to Jacob's well if that was the issue of just it was too far away. Now, something else and something much deeper was behind that last statement so that I don't have to come here anymore. Give me that living water. You know, once this door begins to crack in her soul, Jesus kicks the door in all the way. He pounces on it in verse 16. And he exposes her thirst for what it is. And he gives us the reason why she didn't want to come to that well anymore. He says in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. She says, give me that water. And he says, go call your husband and come here and I'll give it. Obviously, she responds in verse 17, I have no husband which was correct, Jesus says. You've correctly said, I have no husband. For in fact, you've had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. You've, you've spoken what is true. Well, here's the answer to the riddle of this woman. This is why she's alone. This is why she's coming in the middle of the day. This is why she would rather not have to come out to this well to get water. It's because of her shame. By any culture's standards, even ours today, as degraded as it is, having five husbands is quite shocking. And that automatically brings a sense of shame and embarrassment that is difficult to shake, especially when you live in a shame culture like this woman lived. A woman divorced five times? That wasn't merely a statement that their marriage had failed. That was a statement of failure on the part of the woman. And that was a shameful element for not only the community and the family, but for herself as well. Now that was bad enough, but then you add, that, add to that the fact that she was living with a man who was not her husband, with whom she had not been married and had not entered into a marriage covenant. And that just adds to her shame. Now Jesus is exposing all of this, not trying to shame her. That's not, that's not how he acts with us, but he's using her personal life to prove how empty her spiritual well truly was. She could tout all she wanted about the differences between the Jews and the Samaritans and the status of inheriting Jacob's well and worshiping God at Mount Gerizim and the Mount of Blessing, but Jesus' prophetic insight into her life cut right through the facade of her religion and her debating. He laid her heart open and exposed it for what it was. She was a sinner who was longing and yearning for something to satisfy her that went deeper than her relationships or her religion. Her broken relationships and her shattered life proved only the fact that despite her religion, her soul was still thirsty and she had not yet found the water that would truly satisfy her. That's proven further by how she responds to Jesus when she's exposed, right? When Jesus says, oh, yeah, you're right. You, you don't have a husband right now, but you have had five. And the one you're with right now is in your husband. What does she do? How does she react when he exposes her sin? In verse 19, she responds like any other sinner responds when they're found out in their sin. She deflects. She tries to change the subject. She doesn't want to talk about it. Too personal, too close to home. She shifts the focus back to what she was comfortable talking about, which was the religious debate of the day. Right? You know, it's a clear sign of the true state of a person's soul when he or she, uh, uh, a clear sign of the true state of a person's soul is what he or she does when her, his or her sin is being exposed. 
Do you cover it up? Do you hide it? Do you put on those fig leaves? Or do you come to God and confess that sin and deal with it with hope in the gospel that he's promised to forgive all who will do that? Just in conclusion, we're going to end here. You know, as Jesus says in John 4.10, he came into this world to give living water to all who would ask him. But before any of us will ask him for that water, Jesus first has to expose our thirst. He has to show us that we are thirsty, and he has to show us that our desires and our cravings for sin are actually something much different than merely a pleasure in unrighteousness. They're actually a manifestation of our yearning for God himself. Our souls are yearning for God as his image bearers. We were made to live in fellowship with him and our, 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 our lives are only completed when we as God's image are connected to the one who is the image whom we bear, whose image we bear. We are unsatisfied. We are, we are disjointed. We are out of, out of step until we are in a right relationship with God. And behind every pursuit of sin is a craving to be satisfied with God. Behind this woman's five broken marriages and her adulterous relationship was actually a spiritual yearning to be satisfied with God himself. Jesus came into the world not to condemn or to shame that thirst, but to amplify it. And in the lives of all whom he has this divine appointment to save, Jesus Christ is relentless in exposing our spiritual thirst so that we will be driven to come to him to be satisfied by his living water. I praise the Lord Jesus that he will not leave any of his children satisfied in the broken cisterns that they carve out for themselves in this life. Jeremiah 2.13, this is the age-old evil of humanity, right? That we forsake the fountain of living water, the true and living God, and we hew out for ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. We stick our faces to that muck and we try to suck as much water as we can out of that clay pit. And God looks at us and says, why, 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 why are you doing that? There's no life there. There's nothing that you're going to get there. All you're going to find is more brokenness. Give yourself to the pursuit of buying stuff. You're going to find brokenness. Give yourself to being entertained and watching movies and, and give yourself to, to, um, to, to pursuing things like skydiving and, and, and car racing and build your own classic cars and get that job that you're longing for and become that, get that status that you've been aiming for your whole life. All you're going to find at the end of that pursuit is not more life-giving water, it's going to be emptiness. That's exactly what the Samaritan woman had done. She had hewn out for herself broken cisterns of religion that held no living water of God in it, and that was put on display by the sin in her life. Her sinfulness and broken relationships betrayed a restless spirit that was suffering from a lack of fellowship with God. Now, she didn't see that connection. She didn't connect those dots, but that's what Jesus came to do, to connect those dots and say, hey, this thing that you're struggling with right here, actually, what it is, it's a manifestation of your own emptiness. And you need to come to me to be satisfied. My friend, is Jesus that relentless with you?
I wonder. Will he let you be satisfied with broken cisterns in this world? Enough that you don't find your soul yearning and longing for something greater. This is why we, we decline as life goes on. You know that, right? This is why our health wanes, and this is why as we get older, we break down. Life isn't as fun anymore. We're tired of all the death. We're tired of all the trial. We're tired of all the pain. You know why Jesus lets us live a life like that? So that we continually get weaned off of our broken cisterns in this world. And we start finding our true satisfaction in him as our rock that gives life or living water. You know, I don't care who you are. I don't care what background you come from. I don't care what sins you have committed in your life, whether it's abortion or sexual immorality or theft or lying or jealousy or anger. Whatever the sin is, Jesus has no prejudice when he deals with sinners like us. He does not deal with us apart from seeing us as image bearers that need to be made right with God. Everyone who will come to him and f- will find him to be their perfect savior and they will find in him the living water that their souls are craving, the true living water of a life lived in fellowship with God. So he exposes our thirst so that he might satisfy that thirst with himself. And we're going to look at that next week. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the time that we get to be under your word. And I pray you would use it to bless us, to strengthen us for the day of eternity and the day of glory. Lord, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. And let our hope be firmly placed in you. Lord, we want to know that life-giving water more fully in our day-to-day moments, Lord. So give us a due sense of that mercy so that we might live with you in praise and worship and fellowship. Father, bless us as we sing this closing hymn. May we pour out hearts of worship to you adequately by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hear the benediction from Revelation 21, verses 5 and 6. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these down, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. That's the eternity to which we're going. And by Christ's grace, that eternity has broken into the present. So may you get satisfaction in going to Jesus and drinking from those uh, fountains of living water. Lord, may you bless your people. May you send them forth in peace. May you make your face shine upon them and keep them for the sake of your holy and gracious and glorious name. We pray this in Jesus' name, Father. Amen. 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 May you go in peace.